Setting coordinates. Outlaw located. Hi, I'm Ryan McCarthy, and welcome to The Stolen Goods. This podcast is all about outlaws, bandits, and scourges of the seven seas. Every week, we're going to take a look at a different one of these characters and learn about them. We'll shine the spotlight on some of the most infamous bandits, outlaws, and pirates in history, and even dig deeper to learn about some that maybe you haven't heard of before. I am not a historian, nor do I claim to be an expert on the topic. I'm just a guy who thinks this type of stuff is rad and wants to learn more about it. So grab your bow and arrow, six-shooter, and bag of and join me as we walk the plank and plunge into the lawless world of banditry and swashbucklery. Is that a word? Together. All right, and welcome to The Stolen Goods. My name is Ryan McCarthy. Thank you so much for carving out some time in your day, whatever day it is, uh, to listen to this episode. It's uh, it's kind of a hectic time of the year, a lot of stuff going on. Um I personally don't have kids, but I, I have nephews, and I can only imagine uh, if you have children and you're trying to make this holiday season, regardless of your, uh, you know, uh, religious faith, if you have religious faith or whatever, it is just a um, busy time of the year, and uh, you want to make it a special time for your family, and um, so uh, taking a little bit of time to listen to this podcast, listen to, and um talk about some bandits and pirates and all that jazz that has very little to do with the holiday season, but still we're doing it. Um, so thank you. Thank you for uh, tuning in. And I really do appreciate it. Ryan at the stolen goods podcast.com. If you want to send me an email, the stolen goods buzzsprout.com is the website. And uh, I'm hoping in the future to uh, make a, a more elaborate website, but right now you can go to that website and, and it has all the episodes and you can click on whatever link you want to like whatever platform you want to listen to the uh, podcast on and uh, share it with your friends. Uh, if you're on iTunes or audible, um, please uh, take some time if you're enjoying the podcast and uh, throw a, um, throw a rating on there. Hopefully it is a good one and I'd really appreciate that. I got a few more ratings on iTunes and I just want to say thank you to those people who, uh, who dropped some, um, dropped some, um, very warm words. Uh, they're, they're enjoying the podcast and that really means a lot to me. So, uh, uh, yeah. So today is a slightly different podcast. We're not so much talking about a bandit or a pirate. Uh, there is somebody in this story that has committed a theft, but um, it's more or less the the theft, the act of something being stolen, um, not so much the uh, the person. So today, we are talking about the theft of the Mona Lisa, and there was a person who obviously committed the crime, and he is part of it, uh, and... Uh, so we're going to get into it, and uh, so let's talk. Let's let's look at the journey that essentially created the icon that is the Mona Lisa, um, the way she is viewed today by by the general public, and what has just launched her into absolute stardom. There were a million amazing artists in the uh, the Renaissance period. So what made the Mona Lisa uh, just Far and above, you know, when you look for, when you have in your mind the go-to priceless painting, you know, nine times out of ten, people are going to like at least think the Mona Lisa. So why don't we jump into the time machine 
And let's go back and let's take a look at the journey of this painting. And let's start that right now. So here we are on April 15th, 1452, in the small town of Anciano, outside of the town of Vinci, in the Tuscany region of Italy. And at this time, Tuscany was its own state and didn't become part of Italy until February 18th, 1861. And on this day, and in this town, the world was graced with the birth of one of the greatest artists and inventors the world has ever known, Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo, or Leo, as I'm probably going to call him uh, at some point in this episode because it's just shorter, was born out of wedlock to a peasant mother named Caterina and a wealthy attorney and notary father named Sir Piero da Vinci, making Leonardo's formal name Leonardo de Sir Piero da Vinci. Leonardo's parents never got married because Leo's father was already betrothed to another woman named Albietta Amadori, so he married her, and she died in 1464, and Leo's father subsequently went on to get married three more times, and Leo's mother went on to marry an artist named Antonio de Piero Butti del Veca, and I really hope I got that name right, and between Caterina and Antonio and Sir Piero and his four different wives, they had combined 16 children, giving Leonardo an absolute army of half-siblings. But even though Leo's parents never got married, they must have cared for each other enough for his father to provide him and his mother with a sweet villa to live in in Vinci. So little is known about Leonardo from his childhood, but he did not have a formal education. However, his father nurtured his creative instinct, and when he was 15, set Leo up with an apprenticeship with renowned sculptor and painter Andrea del Veracchio in Florence, who was taught by Donatello. And for a decade, he studied under Veracchio, honing his craft. Then, in 1482... His hardware paid off, and he got his first commission project to paint the Adoration of the Magi for a monastery in Scapetto, Italy. I'll put a picture of that painting on the Facebook page. But he never finished it because he got a better-paying gig and moved to Milan to work for the Sforza Duke of Milan, where he was commissioned to paint Virgin on the Rocks and was even asked to sculpt a 16-foot-tall equestrian statue for the Duke. But after 12 years of working on it and sculpting the clay and getting everything perfect, in 1493, the bronze that was supposed to be used to cover the clay sculpture needed to be repurposed for war. And in 1494, Charles VIII from France invaded Italy, and they needed that bronze to build cannons. And the clay sculpture that Leonardo had already made was destroyed in the war. So he wasted 12 years of his life on this project for nothing. But then, shortly afterward, in 1495, he started working on The Last Supper, a 15-foot by 29-foot fresco mural painting. And fresco means that water-based paint is applied to wet plaster so that the paint becomes one with the plaster, making the painting much more durable. Fresco paintings still exist today from as far back as 1500 BCE. Unfortunately, Da Vinci used oil-based paints for this fresco mural because the water-based paints didn't blend well to give him the effect he was looking for. So within a few decades, the painting started to flake. 
The painting you see in the Louvre today is a replica while the original is still in its original location at the Santa Maria del Grazi convent in Milan, Italy. A mere 12-hour flight from Bradley International Airport here in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. And I love putting like walk in the options for directions when you're talking about something that's overseas because the computer is just like, I, 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 I don't know what you mean, what? Like, you just can't figure it out. <laughs> Uh, anyway, after the French invaded Milan in 1499 and killed the ruling duke of the Sforza family, da Vinci was able to escape to Florence, and here, in 1503, he started working on a 21-inch by 30-inch painting, or for the rest of the world, 53-centimeter by 76-centimeter painting called La Gioconda in Italian, or La Gioconde in French for a wealthy merchant named Francisco del Gioconda. The painting was a portrait of his wife, Lisa del Gioconda, also known as Lisa Giardini. You may have heard of it. It's a little painting known as the Mona Lisa. The term Mona is derived from the Italian term Madonna, which is the equivalent of Milady in English, and got contracted to Mona over time. The painting is not a canvas, but a plank of poplar wood. Apparently, wood was a popular choice for artists back then. Maybe it is today. I don't really know, because I'm not an artist. And even from the beginning, artists came from far and wide to appreciate the lifelike beauty of the painting and her enigmatic expression. The painting shows the woman Lisa sitting in front of an imagined landscape in the background. This was a new thing that da Vinci introduced. Portraits before this just had whatever was in the background in the background. The painting also portrays a woman with a very aloof smile with her eyes shifted about 15 degrees to the left, drawing the viewer of the painting in while she seems to be interested in something else. One of the most revolutionary characteristics of the painting is the fact that the woman in the painting is very plain looking. She isn't wearing any jewelry and her hair is simply parted down the middle, whereas most portraits of women had them wearing all sorts of extravagant hairdos and tons of jewelry. This gives the Mona Lisa a look of realistic beauty versus an unfair level of beauty that women back then could never live up to. Artistic contemporary Raphael was so obsessed with the painting and the X factor that it possessed that he tried to duplicate the effort in his work like the Maddalena Doni. He also painted the young woman with a unicorn, which is inspired by da Vinci's Lady with an Ermine. Some even consider Raphael's painting La Donna Valletta to be the greatest painting of the Renaissance era. Raphael was a supreme Renaissance painter whose attention to detail is legendary. I'm going to try and put all of these pictures up on the Facebook page. Leonardo worked on the Mona Lisa painting until 1506, but he never gave it to Francisco del Gioconda. He spent the next six years back in Milan until it was recaptured by the French, and then another three years in Rome, all the while studying a wide range of subjects including nature, anatomy, architecture, and physics, and it is said that a lot of his projects didn't get finished because he was so distracted by this wide range of interests. While this was going on, Michelangelo completed the ceiling at the Sistine Chapel in 1512, a job he did not want to do. And I just threw that in there to mention all the Ninja Turtles. Finally, he was hired to work for King Francis I of France in 1516 under the title Premier Painter and Engineer and Architect to the King, a sweet gig that offered him the ability to work on projects at his leisure. Leonardo da Vinci stayed with the King until his death in 1519 after selling King Francis I the Mona Lisa for 4,000 gold ducats. And you remember back in the 90s when people were calling dollars ducats for a little bit? I always wondered where that came from. 
Anyway, King Francis kept the Mona Lisa displayed in the Fontainebleau Palace until King Louis XIV moved it to the Palace of Versailles in 1682. But Louis XIV's son, Louis XV, hated the painting and had it removed, and it was stored in a warehouse to keep it safe during the French Revolution until 1800, when Napoleon Bonaparte snagged it and hung it in his bedroom until 1804, when it was hung in the Grand Galley at the Louvre Museum in Paris, France, which was built in 1793. That is where it stayed undisturbed until August 21st, 1911, when one man took the Mona Lisa from being a magnificent work of art appreciated almost exclusively by art enthusiasts to a worldwide superstar almost overnight. So, while the Mona Lisa is slumbering quietly in the Louvre for this 107-year period, on October 8th, 1881, a man named Vincenzo Perugia I've also heard it called Perugia, but I think it's Perugia, was born in Dumenza, Italy. Perugia was a petty criminal who moved to France in 1908 and got a job at the Louvre as a carpenter making wooden frames with glass panels in them that the more expensive paintings could be encased in. At this time, Italians were looked down upon by the French and were treated poorly and called macaroni eaters as a derogatory slur. This was ironic because the French revered Italian art but treated Italians like crap. So after enough of this mistreatment by the French, Perugia hatched a plan to stick it to the French once and for all. At this time in 1911, the Louvre was closed on Mondays, I assume to clean up after the weekend and tend to any artwork that needed attention. This means that there weren't a lot of people working that day. So at about 7 a.m., Vincenzo Perugia walked into the Louvre wearing his museum-issued smock and blended in with the rest of the workers that were entering the employee entrance that day. Some sources claim that him and two accomplices hid in the broom closet overnight. Whatever the case may be, Perugia walked right up to where the Mona Lisa was hanging on the wall, and when the coast was clear, unhooked the painting from the four wall mounts holding it in place, took it off the wall, and dashed to a nearby stairwell where he carefully removed it from its frame and made his way to an exit in the stairwell. But here he runs into a snag. The door was locked. Crap, he thought. So he hid the painting in a nearby broom closet and started to try and unscrew the door handle, but soon heard footsteps coming down the stairs. So he stopped what he was doing and sat on the stairs and tried to play it cool. In a few moments, he was greeted by a plumber who noticed the half-dismantled doorknob and asked Perugia what had happened here. And Perugia was like, I don't know, I just got here. So the plumber, thinking nothing of it, unlocks the door and walks out and locks the door behind him. Crap. Now he's got to find another way out. So Perugia, having no choice, retrieves the painting from the closet, takes off his smock, drapes it over the Mona Lisa, puts it under his arm, and walks out the front door. That's it, folks. The art theft of the century. The dude walks right out the front door with it. It's important to remember that in the Lou's defense, art theft really wasn't a big thing back then and security wasn't very strict. Nowadays, art theft is the fourth highest criminal enterprise in the world with approximately 50,000 works of art stolen per year in an annual dollar value of eight to nine billion dollars. Art theft is only exceeded by drugs, arms dealing, and money laundering. But back then, people hadn't really figured out that some people may be willing to pay big money for stolen works of art. 
So you would think that after Prugi walked out the door, someone would walk past to notice the empty space on the wall where the Mona Lisa once sat and freak out and sound the alarm and everyone would just lose their mind. But the truth is, is that the Mona Lisa's absence went unnoticed for an entire day until Tuesday morning when local painter Louis Baru came to the Louvre to paint the Mona Lisa. Baru made his living painting replicas of famous works of art and selling them to tourists. And the Louvre was fine with this as long as those replicas were not the same size. So he sets up all of his stuff and he's ready to go. And he looks up and he notices that the painting is missing. So Baru is like, ah, oh, come on. So Baru is a little annoyed, but he doesn't think on anything of it. He just thought that the painting was probably just being photographed. Photography was still a relatively new thing with better resolution photos being introduced around the turn of the century. So photographing art to make postcards and other souvenirs was like the newest thing. So Baru went up to the security guard who had already been doing a bang up job and asked him if he knew when the photographers would be done with the Mona Lisa. And the guard is like, I don't know. So Baru says, hey, do you mind asking them how long they're going to be? So the guard goes to the photography room and he asks them how long it's going to be until they're done photographing the Mona Lisa. And the photographers are like, what are you talking about? And then everyone starts freaking out. They look everywhere and it's gone. And there's like a thousand rooms in the Louvre and they look far and wide and they can't find it anywhere. Before you know it, the Louvre is crawling with 60 detectives from all over France and the Louvre is shut down for a week while they process the crime scene. The investigation was headed by renowned investigator and prefect of police, Louis Lapine, who got the nickname the man with the big stick for the way he handled big crowds. In a few days, word got out that the Mona Lisa had been stolen and before you know it the story was splattered all over the front pages of newspapers all over the world with headlines like the New York Times saying 60 detectives seek stolen Mona Lisa French public indignant once the Louvre opened back up thousands of people lined up to visit the Louvre just to see the empty space where the Mona Lisa once was adding more credibility to the saying don't know what you got till it's gone before you know it the Mona Lisa is on postcards dolls of the Mona Lisa were being made, parody paintings of her were being painted. She was everywhere. And many historians say that had any other painting by that caliber artist from the Renaissance period been stolen, that would now be the most famous painting in the world. Historian James Zug said in an NPR interview, the Mona Lisa wasn't even the most famous painting in its gallery, let alone the Louvre. And art history professor at the American University of Rome, Noah Charney, said in a 2013 CNN article, quote, There was nothing that really distinguished it per se other than it was a very good work by a very famous artist. That's until it was stolen. Later in the article, he said, The theft launched it into becoming a household name for people who had never been to Europe or had any interest in art. And it's really just continued from there. End quote. The Mona Lisa didn't even start getting a lot of attention from critics until 1860, 56 years after it was introduced to the Louvre. So here we are, detectives running like chickens with their heads cut off, newspapers working up a frenzy, and people all over the world rabid for more juicy scandal gossip. But Louis Lapine was a progressive thinker and considered by many the father of forensic police practices in France. So he was all about using the relatively new forensic technique, fingerprinting. They had found the frame, which had a glass front, and there was a fingerprint on the glass. The first case of fingerprinting analysis in a court trial was the previous year in 1910. 
On top of this, they noticed how carefully the painting had been removed from the frame, implying that it would most likely have been an employee of the Louvre. So they gathered up a list of all the employees of the Louvre so they could compare their prints. Unfortunately, they didn't know which fingerprint it was, so they were going to have to sift through the fingerprints of a couple hundred employees times 10 fingerprints each. Everything seemed to be going as well as possible considering the perpetrator already had a day head start, but Lapine made one critical error in judgment. Lapine, as well as others, were convinced that only a criminal of sophistication could possibly have pulled off such a heist. They had images in their mind of some American millionaire stealing it and keeping it locked away in some secret compound somewhere as he looked upon his prize while sipping brandy and smoking cigars. So some some simpleton like Vincenzo Perugia couldn't possibly be the culprit. At one point, the American businessman J.P. Morgan was considered as a possible suspect. Nevertheless, the police sent an officer to Peruga's apartment just to cover all their bases. After a brief interrogation, the officer didn't find anything, so he left not knowing that he was just within a few feet of the hidden painting. The police were starting to get frustrated and started to widen their net, and on September 7th, arrested famous poet and playwright Guillaume Apollinaire for the heist. He had been implicated in the theft of a few Iberian stone busts that had been stolen from the Louvre by his secretary, Jerry Perret. Once brought in for questioning, he immediately rolled over on his friend and famous modern art painter Pablo Picasso, who had bought a couple of the busts for one of his own art projects. Once the two were brought in front of the judge, they both broke down and started crying like sniveling babies, and Picasso even went as far as to say that he had never met Apollinaire even though they were well known to be good friends. After this display, the judge was like, all right, I've seen enough, and he was convinced that they had nothing to do with it, so he let him go. After this, the trail went completely cold, and it wasn't until December of 1913, over two years later, that the story would pick back up again. After laying low for two years until all the heat was off, Perugia went back to Florence, Italy, with the Mona Lisa hidden in the false bottom of his trunk and contacted an antique dealer named Alfredo Jerry by letter saying that he had the Mona Lisa and wanted to turn it in for the humble reward of 500,000 lira. Perugia signed the letter with the name Leonardo, so they decided to meet at Perugia's hotel room, but Jerry was clearly skeptical that this was a hoax, so he contacted his friend Giovanni Poggi, director of the Uffizi Gallery, which is Italy's equivalent of the Louvre. Jerry later wrote, I called my friend Giovanni Poggi, director of the Uffizi Gallery, and together we went to view the painting in the stranger's room at the Hotel Tripoli. As we stood watching, the man opened a trunk full of wretched belongings. Then he took out an object wrapped in a red cloth, and to our astonished eyes, the divine Giaconda appeared intact and wonderfully preserved. The two told Perugia that they needed to bring the painting back to the museum to check it against photographs to authenticate it, and told Perugia to sit tight, and once that was done, they would send him his reward. But once they confirmed it was real, instead of giving Perugia his reward, they called the police, and Perugia was promptly arrested at his hotel. Considering how easy it was to steal the painting, there was nothing suggesting that he was any type of criminal mastermind. Perugia was put on trial, and he claimed that he was just doing his patriotic duty and rescuing the Mona Lisa from the clutches of the French who he was under the impression had stolen the painting from Italy and did not know that Leonardo da Vinci had willingly sold it to the King of France. 
but the judge wasn't buying it and pointed out that Perugia tried to get paid for his efforts. Even with that being the case, the public ate up the patriotism angle and considered him a hero, and the judge even gave him a lenient sentence of a year and 15 days, which got boiled down to seven months, and since he had already spent eight months in jail awaiting trial, he was immediately released. Vincenzo Perugia afterward fought in World War I, was captured and held in a POW camp for two years until the war was over, and then went back to France, got married, had a daughter, became a painter and a decorator, and died on his 44th birthday of a heart attack in 1925. Once the Mona Lisa was recovered by the Italian government, it was agreed that it would be returned to France in the name of brotherly love between Latin countries, but not before it was displayed in the Uffizi Museum for two weeks and then toured around Italy for another two weeks so that Italians could have a chance to view the masterpiece that was native to their country. And this was something that France agreed to again in the spirit of two countries working together. And I thought that was really nice. After the painting was returned to France, the reaction was immediate and over 100,000 visitors came to see the Mona Lisa in the first two days. And her fame as the most famous work of art on the planet continued to launch into the stratosphere. Today, over 9.6 million people come to visit the painting every year, more or less just to say that they've seen the Mona Lisa. And in 1962, the Mona Lisa was insured for $100 million, which today after inflation is about $850 million. And from time to time, Italy tries to get the painting back from France, and France claims that the painting is just too darn fragile to move. A pretty convenient and super sweet excuse, if you ask me. I'd be doing the same thing. I'd be like, oh, I'd love to do it, but oh, it's just too fragile. Sorry. You know? Now, I'm going to tell you something that, depending on how much you know about the Mona Lisa, may or may not blow your mind. There are actually two copies of the Mona Lisa. The second one, which is actually an earlier copy, originally known as the Isleworth Mona Lisa and is now known as the earlier Mona Lisa, was said to have been painted 10 years before the Mona Lisa that we all know and shows a younger version of Lisa Giardini. It was bought in Italy in 1778 by a British nobleman and was rediscovered by British art collector Hugh Blaker in 1913 and was put on display in London, England. I'll put a picture of that painting on the Facebook page too. Debates still rage about whether the Isleworth Mona Lisa was painted by Da Vinci, but for my money, the original that we all know and love is a far better painting. So that's it. That's the story of the heist of the Mona Lisa. And you can see that the, the fame that comes along with a scandal is just, it helps just just launch this painting into absolute stardom. And not to say that the Mona Lisa is not an absolutely amazing painting. And through doing this research, I learned stuff about what makes the Mona Lisa great that I never thought about before. I'm not a huge art enthusiast, uh, but now looking at the Mona Lisa, I can see what makes it such an amazing painting. Uh, but just like anything else, you add a little bit of scandal, you add a little bit of a story behind it, and things just explode. So, uh... Uh, that's it, and and again, thank you so much for taking your time to to listen to this episode of the Stolen Goods. And next week, I think we're going to be back with a bandit because uh, this one really didn't count. It was kind of neater. Um, uh, we did a pirate. We did Henry Every before this one, and uh, so who knows? We'll we'll figure out what we're going to do. It'll be somebody. Uh, but uh, uh, I hope that everything is going smoothly for you in this holiday season. Uh, you're not getting bogged down at the mall or whatever you're doing. Maybe you're doing all your shopping on on Amazon. Uh, but 
one way or another. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying your holiday season. And we'll be back next week with another episode. So until then, Ryan at thestolengoodspodcast.com, thestolengoods.buzzsprout.com. And uh, I hope you have a great week, and I will talk to you later. <laughs>